Welcome to Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each week I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is Seth Christianfeld. Seth is a lyricist, book writer, and dramaturg, as well as the literary coordinator at the York Theatre Company. He holds a BA in Drama Studies from SUNY Purchase and an MFA in Musical Theatre Writing from NYU. We're going to talk today about adaptations in musical theatre. Seth, thanks for being here today. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm, I'm really glad you're doing this podcast because I also believe that musical theater is serious business. We're going to get started with our first section, which is a get to know our guest section. What was your first experience with a musical? I think the first thing I can concretely think of, that I concretely thought of as a musical, was seeing The Little Mermaid when it came out. It was... Uh, November of 1989, I was seven years old, and I remember it very clearly. And then I had the soundtrack on cassette and listened to it a lot. And then the next year, Beauty and the Beast, came, or two years later, Beauty and the Beast came out, and I listened to that a lot. Um, the first time I saw a musical on stage, August of 1990, my parents took me to see a production of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum at the Emelin Theater in Mamaroneck. It was like the last gasp of summer stock. And most of the cast is lost to the ages. I have never found a program from it or anything. But Pseudolus was played by a comedian named Jack Carter, who was old then and only died like last year. And he did the show, which I was already familiar with because I had listened to the cast album. After the show, Jack Carter, who had been, he had been a comedian in the 50s and 60s and was still a comedian then, but wasn't well known. At all, really anymore. He came out and did a whole routine about how terrible the conditions on this tour were. He was very annoyed at the tour, but it made for good comedy, or at least I thought it was good comedy when I was eight. The year after that, it was in uh, 92, so I guess that was, 90, that was 91 that I saw for him, sorry, not 90. Um, the year after that, in 92, uh, just about a, almost exactly a year later, my parents took me to see the uh, Nathan Lane, Faith Prince, Guys and Dolls revival, which was my first show on Broadway. What is so? What is the last great musical you saw, and why? Okay, I hesitate to use the word great because I think that great implies like this is going to be a piece of the canon. Mm-hmm. And I think the the last thing that I saw that I think truly has the potential to be part of the future canon was the band's visit. A couple of things that I've seen recently that I have found were very exciting. Um, Miss You Like Hell at the Public, which felt like it was working with a completely different vocabulary from almost any other musical I've seen. Uh, it felt almost like a, a musical that happens when nobody involved has any clue what they're doing, and they somehow end up with lightning alchemy and create this thing with sort of a naive art gloriousness, even though I know that everybody involved knew exactly what they were doing because everybody involved were terrific artists. Lear de Bessonet is a fantastic director. Aaron McKeown is a great songwriter. And Chiara Alcudes wrote one of the best original books of recent times for In the Heights. But the whole thing felt, 
I don't want to say like it happened by accident, but that's sort of how it felt. Like if you picked any of those pieces apart, it would fall apart. But as a whole, it came together into something gorgeous and intensely moving. Uh, a friend of mine described it as being like a bowl that has been shattered and then pasted back together and a couple of pieces are missing, but it still holds water. One more thing that I saw recently that I really dug was SpongeBob SquarePants, oddly enough. I loved that show. I went in having a sort of passing familiarity with the characters and situations, but never having watched the show. It is eye-popping to look at. It's like the Lion King on acid. Um, <laughs> it's all this found object stuff put together in these crazy day glow colors. And it is just amazing to look at. It's also really funny. It's got a surprising amount of political undertone to it. And it felt to me kind of like you're in town for kids. And mm. I love you're in town. I saw you're in town six times. So what older or classic show did you see recently for the first time? And what was your experience with it? I always thought I didn't like Hello, Dolly. How come? Um, I'd listen, I had listened to the album and never found too much to like it. The original album. Mm -hmm. Never found all that much like it. I'm not a huge Jerry Herman fan in general, although every time I see a Jerry Herman fan or in show, I wonder, why don't I like Jerry Herman all that much? Because he's really good at this. Um, when I was at summer camp, this was 96, we went on a field trip to see a, an out, a big outdoor stock production in Albany. Uh, with Ernestine Jackson as Dolly, we ended up, for whatever reason, voting to leave at intermission. I might have been like the one person who wanted to stay just to, you know, see what happens. But for whatever reason, for years, I had this idea in my head that I don't like Hello, Dolly, that it is dull and cheesy. And then I went to see this production, and I was so wrong. It turns out I love Hello Dolly. That show is a is a two hour, two and a half hour grin machine. I could not stop smiling the whole way through. And I think maybe it's not that I don't like Hello Dolly, it's that I'm just not a big fan of Carol Channing. Well you said you were grinning the whole time. I actually found myself crying mm -hmm. <laughs> at one point during it when you know, when at the scene in the Harmonia Gardens restaurant where she comes back and... Uh, She'll never go away again. And she talks about her... She kind of alludes to the time in between where she was in this haze. Yeah. And that just really struck me as, like, it just brought up, like, what what was her life like in that time and what was she doing? She is coming back How to was life. she feeling and you know and then she is all then she's singing and dancing just that contrast really struck me and I, got to me and yeah. I started crying I can really imagine that material being really heartbreaking in Bernadette's hands what's a musical people might be surprised to find out that you love and why would they be surprised to find out that you love it people are sometimes seem very surprised to learn that my all-time favorite musical, not the one that I think is the best, my all-time favorite musical is Sideshow, ah. uh, which I saw when I was in ninth grade. It has its flaws, but it, uh, 15 year old me found it so deeply moving 
that to me it was it was a new high watermark where my previous high watermark had been Les Miserables, which I also love and still do. Um, something about that the message of the outcasts being brought into the fold played very well with teenage me. Mm -hmm. If you could require the president or our government leaders to see one musical, not necessarily playing right now, what would that musical be? I think it would be The Band's Visit. It's a show about the essential humanity of people. It's a show about a group of Ar a group of Egyptian Arabs and a group of Israeli Jews who meet in a small town and nothing happens and that's the point nothing happens there's no conflict between them there is only only an exposure of humanity these two groups learn to see each other as people not as not as a monolithic entity and I wish more people could do that here. Let's move on to our topic at hand, which is musical adaptations. Yeah. So uh, when you see or hear people complaining about musical adaptations, and these uh, we're defining musical adaptations as musicals that people write as new musicals, but they're adapted from some uh, previous source material. Yeah. Uh you hear a lot of people complaining, what happened to the original musical? Why does nobody write original musicals anymore? And here's the thing. Original musicals have never been, at least not in many, many years, is the most common way of writing a musical. People have always been adapting things. If we look back as far as as far as like Rodgers and Hart, for example, and we could look back even further, we're just not going to, even they, they wrote 22 book musicals in about 17 years from uh, 1925 through 1942. And of those, seven were adaptations. But for the most part, the, uh, the 15 original ones, other than On Your Toes and Babes in Arms, Nobody ever sees those originals. Nobody is champing at the bit to produce Dearest Enemy, although I really enjoy to see a production of Dearest Enemy. Nobody is champing at the bit to, perform, to produce Simple Simon or The Girlfriend. But you, you see productions of On Your Toes, you see productions of Babes in Arms, although you see Babes in Arms with, with God knows how many new books that people have written. Of those seven adaptations, those, those are some of those are the other really enduring works of theirs. The Boys from Syracuse, which, which is based on the Comedy of Errors, and Pal Joey is the other one of their shows that is that is seen more and more again with, for some reason, any number of rewritten books that don't improve on the original. Oh, which is which had a, the original one had a book by John O'Hara adapting his own short stories. And at that point, original musicals were still technically more common than they were than they are now, if only because there was so much more being produced. At that, in those days, a show could run six months, and that would be a great run. That would, it would recoup, it could go, it could go on the road, and it would, it would, there was, that was before the Tonys, all a show had to do was make its money and go, and. And a show could do that in six or nine months, and 
then they just move on to the next thing. And that's how Rodgers and Hart wrote, like I said, 22 book musicals in 17 years. But then people say, why don't they write them like Rodgers and Hammerstein anymore? Rodgers and Hammerstein only wrote two original musicals. And those were Allegro, which was a succès d'estime, as they say, which is to say a flop that people liked. And the other was Me and Juliet, which is a flop that nobody really likes and that nobody ever sees anymore. But all the sh- all the other sh- all their other shows were adaptations. Oklahoma is based on a play. Carousel is based on a play. South Pacific is based on short stories. King and I is based on a book, but bears a certain debt to the film of that book without credit. Uh, Sound of Music was based on a book, again, fairly loosely considering. Pipe Dream is based on a book that was being written while they were writing the musical, if I remember, if I remember correctly. Even then, people were adapting things. Now, the question is, now, p- today, people complain, I mean, why are, all the, why are all these musicals based on movies? And I think that's because movies are the main source of the cultural conversation these days. Right. So Not as many plays. Right. There aren't as many plays. And new plays that get written tend to focus more strongly on, stage, on the stagecraft of being plays and don't have room for music. So, I mean, I love... pretty much everything that Annie Baker has written, but there is no space in there for songs. I mean, there is literally space for songs in the flick because it's very long and has a lot of pauses, (laughs) but I wouldn't want to try adapting that into a musical. Not physical space, but space in the 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 content. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if If we look at the shows that won Best Musical, in the 1950s, okay, we have... 1950, South Pacific, based on a book. 1951, Guys and Dolls, based on the stories. Mm-hmm. 1952, The King and I, based on a book. 1953, Wonderful Town, based on stories. 1954, Kismet, based on a play, which had also been made into multiple films. 1955, The Pajama Game, based on a book. 1956, Damn Yankees, based on a book. 1957, My Fair Lady, based on a play. And then 1958 and 1959, we get, for the first time, original musicals winning, which were The Music Man and Redhead. In the 1960s, we start with The Sound of Music and Fiorello, tying, one of the few times that, I think would be the only time that two musicals have tied for Best Musical, and Sound of Music was based on a book, and Fiorello was based on actual life, which is a kind of adaptation, but... 1961 and 1968 were the only original musicals that won in the 60s. 1961 was Bye Bye Birdie, and 1968 was Hallelujah Baby. Now, 1970 is when we get the first Best Musical winner that is based on a film, which is Applause. But for most of its development, Applause was not based on the movie All About Eve. It was based, they only had the rights to the short story by Mary Orr that's based on. It was only during the out-of-town tryout that the producers were able to get the rights to the film All About Eve just so so that they could include some of the lines from the film in the book. 1973 is the first book is the first best musical winner that is based only on a movie, which is a little night music. Oh yeah. People forget that that is based yeah. on a movie. Yeah. In the 1980s, there were no original book musicals that won Best Musical. 
The closest things were Evita in 1980, which is, again, based on life, but isn't a book musical. And in 1989, the last book, the last musical winner of the, of the 80s was Jerome Robbins' Broadway, which has no book and no plot. It's just a series of great production numbers. In the 1990s, the 1990s started off with the one-two punch of City of Angels, which is a wholly original musical, which is the kind of thing that people want to see. They want to see a wholly original musical. And then the Will Rogers Follies, both Cy Coleman musicals. Um, the Will Rogers Follies, again, is based, on, is based on life. So, and then if we look at the best, the best musical winners since 2000, the last two decades, there have been one, two, three, four, five. There have been six original musicals that have won Best Musical since 2000. And people say the original musical is dead. Contact, Avenue Q, In the Heights, Memphis, The Book of Mormon, and Dear Evan Hansen are all basically whole cloth original musicals. Now, we've seen eight, eight, musical, eight Best Musical winners since 2000 based on films. The producers, The Early Modern Millie, Hairspray, Spamalot, Billy Elliot, Once, Kinky Boots, and The Band's Visit. Three based on books, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, Fun Home, and Hamilton, which officially is based on Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton. One based on a play, which is Spring Awakening, and then Jersey Boys, which is based fairly closely on real life. So there's actually been a higher percentage of original musicals winning Best Musical in the last two decades than there were in the, in the golden age of the 50s and 60s. So what creates this? illusion then that we're not getting as many original musicals the what creates this illusion is that then there were many more shows be, as a whole being produced so as a percentage nothing much may have changed but in sheer numbers, there are fewer musicals being produced now than there were then because we have shows that run for decades, like Phantom, like Les Mis Ran, etc. But the other thing that creates this illusion, not of uh, lack of original musicals, but of, of bad musicals based on films, is we get musicals where it feels like calculated like they are trying to create something that is calculated to make money one thing i've noticed that with these adaptations today is that it's very much they're trying to kind of bank on the fact that you know the yeah. movie before, whereas it seems like the adaptations of the past, whether they were adapted from a movie or a play, um, they were just really using that as source material yeah. in order to have something to adapt. Right. They and weren't as, oh, that's okay. They weren't as much saying, well, you know, smiles of a summer night, like I could really, um, you know, get a lot of people in the theater because it's an adaptation of yeah. that movie. And part of how you can tell this is how frequently, although not always, adaptations from the supposed golden age, and I always use this word supposed golden age because I don't, is I believe that there were, that there were great musicals in every age, and I think that the word golden age implies something greater about then than now or a time before that. 
is that in that sort of golden age, they often change the title. My Fair Lady was not titled Pygmalion the Musical. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum it was not titled A Couple of Comedies by Plautus Now with Songs in Them. Man of La Mancha was not titled Don Quixote, okay, um, a new musical. Whereas now we get things, and, it's, and it is always title of film or whatever, colon, the musical. And that's not always a sign of lazy adaptation or bad adaptation, but it's a symptom, or it's a signal, rather. Um, we've got, coming up, we've got a, and a musical version of Tootsie that's coming up. And the cast is spectacular. And the score is going to be by David Yazbek, who I think is probably the great, more prolific songwriter currently working on Broadway or in the musical theater in general. And, but I find myself wondering, even with that team and that cast, what are songs going to add to the plot of Tootsie? How, the question when you're adapting something, to me at least, from a writer's perspective, is how can the change in medium enhance and add to the source material? What are songs, what is putting this on stage going to add to this material that seeing it on screen is not going to do. The problem is not adaptation. The problem is lazy adaptation. Mm -hmm. When you see something and it's clear they thought, we're going to put that on, we're just going to put that on stage, we're going to stick songs in it, and we're going to make us a mint. And sometimes it works, and with luck, sometimes it doesn't, because... Bad adaptation encourages more bad adaptation. Is there a, a movie to musical adaptation that's recent, that keeps the title, that you think works? The Band's Visit, which we talked about earlier. The, band, the Band's Visit is that rare case of... The book of the musical, for much of it, is the screenplay. With, with adaptations and emendations by Itamar Moses and with the songs plugged into it. I saw the film for the first time recently, and it's incredible how close the two are, even to the look of things. And, but those songs and the adaptations of the book, they delve into these characters' psyche in a way, and give us a true, deep understanding of these characters that not everyone can do. And I guess they also weren't under pressure to keep, to count on people's familiarity with the movie. Exactly. Because nobody knew the right. movie. It's not, it's not a well-known film like, say, like Tootsie, for example. We're just going to keep going back to Tootsie just because that just because that was announced just a few days mm -hmm. ago. 
uh, or Dave, which is coming mm-hmm. up. Or Mean Girls, which is on Mean now. Girl. Mean Girls is exactly the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And I guess it also depends on what the songs are and what they're doing and if all your songs are, you know, taking like a swath of dialogue and turning it into Exactly. And turning it into a That's what happened song. With, that's what happened with Heathers, for example. Mm-hmm. So many of the songs in Heathers, the hook of the song, the title of the song just comes from a line of dialogue in the film. Well, there's a one there's a short scene in the film where a character where the father of a kid who's been murdered says, I love my dead gay son. And in the musical, that becomes an entire gospel production number called I Love My Dead Gay Son. Heather's is my example of the inverse of how people bank on people knowing the movie to see the show. Mm -hmm. I saw the movie, I got 10 minutes into it, and I left uh, the room. I didn't see it in the theaters, but I, it was, you know, you know, I left the room, and, because I hated it, and I will not see that musical okay. because of that. And people say, oh, you know, you might enjoy the musical, but I say, if they're banking on people yeah. seeing the musical because they seen the seen and love the movie they have to bank on people not seeing the musical because they've seen and right. hated the movie so yeah. i feel under no obligation but and i i won't obligate you to yeah. see it but that or not even obligation just giving it a chance yeah, no interest but um, but i think that is an issue too like cuz a lot of it is a lot of this ad- movie adaptation is you know you know this film, and so you're... Yeah, you loved, you loved the movie, now you'll love the musical even right. more because it's twice as long and has songs in it. Right, but, you know, plenty of people, I'm sure, did not like Mean Girls yeah. or Dave or Tootsie or whatever. Yeah. Not, you know, but um, so the musical may... Even if the musical is, say, better than the movie, right. if you're banking on that familiarity, then you're going to get a bunch of people... Exactly who are just not going to see the musical because of that association. Right. There are certain associations where you see something and you feel, I have no need to see that. I've seen it in some other form. Right. Yeah, this makes me think of um, Superman the musical. Um, I remember Lee Adams, who is a lyricist on that show, which came out in the Uh, 60... I want to say 67. Um, and by the way, before we go on, know that I'm a huge fan of It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. Yeah, that, that's the, <laughs> and that's the full title. Great. I remember Lee Adams saying that it was so different then because they the show actually didn't do well because of the association with the yeah. show, the TV show that was happening at the same time. And the TV show had ended a few years a few years earlier, but it was concurrent with the bat with the campy Batman TV oh, okay. show, which which was the part one of the associations that killed them. Right. Because you were expecting something campy like Batman, as opposed to not granted, it's a Birds of Land Superman is a musical comedy. Yeah. And part another thing that killed them is that. The writers had trouble musicalizing Superman, so the star part was an invented character played by Jack Cassidy, who was a gossip columnist at the Daily Planet who had the hots for Lois Lane, who wouldn't give him the time of day because, of course, she loves Superman. But I remember him saying like how just it was so different with adaptations then. Yeah. If you couldn't, if something had a familiarity, like it couldn't be yeah. on at the same time. Interestingly, it's a birthplace Superman was an original plot, 
just using the Superman characters. Right. What do you think is the most successful original musical that has been written? Recently, Dear Evan Hansen is doing very well. And that show has its issues, certainly. But when I saw that show at second stage, at intermission, I posted on Facebook, my God, let them stick the landing. And they stuck that. And I felt they stuck that landing. That show has has certain definite issues about it. it um, but I found that to be, it was a very satisfying way of making those dominoes fall. And I did not feel cheated in any way. I think, into, again, In the Heights is another one. It creates this world. It sets up all these dominoes, and then they fall one by one in Act 2, and by God, if it doesn't work. We were talking earlier about uh, Miss You Like Hell, also, oh, which, yeah. is a, which is an original story. And again, that's another one where the, dom- where, the dominoes all f- where the dominoes all fall really well, but the dominoes have been set up very strangely in that case, because there are all these little tangents that don't really add up to anything other than to give sort of flavor but the main plot works like work like gangbusters. I mean, when I think of an original musical, the first one that always comes to mind is Bye Bye Birdie. Yes, yeah, Bye Bye Birdie is bye, successful in many many ways. Yes, yeah, Bye Bye Birdie is is a great. Been done is a great example. so many times by many yes. different people. Yeah, Bring Back Birdie maybe not so much, <laughs> but Bye Bye Birdie is a, is a really good example. Something that I always love asking other musical theater writers, which ties into this topic, mm-hmm. is. Provided that money and rights are not an issue, what is the dream project you'd like to adapt? I know you don't, you haven't done much in the way of adaptation. Yeah, every... well, I think because I think yeah. one thing I was going to add was a lot of the reason that you don't see a lot of writers tackling film adaptations is is the rights exactly, um, which are usually uh, pretty difficult to get to. Absolutely, unless yeah. Um, have some sort of. Yeah. Um, Film rights are especially hard to get, yeah. which is why for a while now so th- we've been looking at books. I've been looking at books and right. plays. Um, so this is my dream film adaptation. It doesn't have. It doesn't have to be a film. Mind you. It can be anything. Right. Well, I have thought a lot about my okay. dream film adaptation, which is which is Troop Beverly Hills. Um, if I, I'm generally not a fan of movie adaptations for the reasons I kind of alluded to in the podcast, but. Um, I just think that movie as a musical would be so fun, and it is about um, you know teenage preteen and teenage girls. I think I and, saw it on an airplane once. Like, <laughs> um, I loved it growing up. I love it now, and I feel like in the right hands, um, it could really you know delve into those girls' lives and thoughts and feelings and emotions. There would have to be something done, you know, to take care of the, the filmic aspects of it, of course, but, and you know, there's already a song built in, which is Cookie Time. Um, and some fun chants, like where the girls from Beverly Hills, which, you know, become a song. But, um, you know, it's something that, um, I, you know, I'm sure, would be incredibly difficult for me to be a writer on, but that is my, yeah, that is my dream film adaptation. It's the only one I feel like I would really be excited about to see. Uh, My dream adaptation, though not a film, 
would be to write a two-night-long musical version of Michael Chabon's novel The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is one of my all-time favorite novels. And it would lend itself incredibly well to musicalization, I think, if it weren't for the fact that it is very long, or at least is stuffed with plot, and which is why I would love to do it as some sort of two-night Angels in America type thing. I wish that more people had the daring to try to do stuff like that, because audiences will sit through multi-part or extremely long plays. Theaters will produce them, but nobody seems to almost ever even try to write a really long musical. Yeah, the, that's true. The one great one that I can think of was the original version of Giant by Michael John Lacusa yes. and Sybil Pearson, which when they did it at Signature, based, based on a novel by Edna Ferber, um, when they did it at Signature, it was four hours long. Did you see it there? I saw it at the you public when, they brought uh, it when the, it was yeah, When they brought shorter. it to the public, they cut an hour out of it. When it was at Signature, it was four hours long, and every moment, every minute of that show counted. When it came in, it had been cut down to three hours, and it felt longer at three hours than it had at four because is, things were stuffed in and cut and moved around. I want to see an, ep- an epic multi-part musical before I die, even if that means I have to write it. <laughs> but... God, don't let me have to write it as an original piece. So let's move on to our next section, which is why is this so good? Yeah. And you have chosen the prologue from Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Yes. Um, because that ties into all this stuff we're talking about with adaptation. Um, if there is one thing that everybody knows about War and Peace... It is that it is really long. It is a very long Russian novel. It's very long, it's very Russian, and it's about war and peace, obviously, and it's, if apocryphally, kind of humorless. So, in creating Natasha Pierre and Great Comet, which is based on an 80-page segment of War and Peace, that's maybe one-tenth of the novel. Dave Malloy knew exactly what he was doing with this. He was creating something that trades on the name of War and Peace without using the name War and Peace in the title. It trades on historical associations with War and Peace and then turns them on their head. The show begins by getting out all the information you need to know about what you're about to see. For those who didn't see it or don't know about it, it was initially staged at Ars Nova in a very small space, then moved to a tent in Chelsea, where it, in both cases it was staged basically environmentally with the, with the actors running around the audience, running around and in between the audience. The audience got food beforehand in an intermission, and, um, and the musicians were in all different corners of the space. And then when it moved to Broadway, the Imperial Theater was significantly reconfigured with seats on stage, uh, staircases going up from the stage up to the, up to the mezzanine so the actors could run up to the mezzanine and run across the mezzanine and run through the... There were extra aisles and, aisles and runways built into the audience so that the actors could run through the audience. So... 
it was raucous, for lack of a better word. And so what Dave Malloy smartly did in this prologue is tell you everything you need to know. The first lines of the show are, there's a war going on out there somewhere, and Andre isn't here. That simple line contains multitudes because there's a war going on out there somewhere, which is, it's flippant. It's irreverent. So you know this is already not your grandfather or grandmother's Constance Garnett translation of War and Peace, although he used a lot of the Constance Garnett translation in writing it. Um, and Andre isn't there. We, Andre's a famous character from this novel. He's not here. It begins just with this guy standing on stage, or getting up from the pit, rather, and singing those lines, accompanying himself on accordion. And then we get into the further parts of this prologue. This is all your program. You are So again, we, the you are given the permission to forget who these what these characters' names are. You are given the permission to look at the synopsis in your playbill. You are going to remember that remember that this is complicated and it's Russian and it doesn't really matter because you're going to have a good time, and you are going to have a good time until until Act Two when your heart breaks, and then. After that, we get the most brilliant part of this, which is that the characters are all introduced one by one in a sim with a simple sense. Natasha is young. She loves Andre with all her heart. She loves Andre with all her heart. Natasha's young and Andre is Sonia is good. Natasha's cousin and closest friend. Natasha's cousin and closest friend. Sonia's good. And then every time they, a character is introduced, we go back and we hear all the names again with their one word. Natasha is, Natasha is young, Sonia is good, Mari is old school, Helene's a slut, Anatole's hot, uh, uh, etc. and so forth. You are given a shorthand right at the start to remember who all these characters are. You don't have to necessarily remember what their relationships are to each other. But you are given a very good shorthand to remember who all these characters are and a significant thing you will need to know about them for the rest to understand the rest of the show. 
And doing all this in an opening number that is insanely catchy to boot is it is yeah. a feat. It is it's a work of it's practic- it's almost a work of, of absolute genius. And I love that sh- uh, Natasha Pierre or the Great Con. I saw it three times on Broadway, having also seen it once downtown. And if that number does not catch you, and I know people who did not like the show, you're never going to catch up, I don't think. Um, which is why it's there. Because it is very difficult for that number not to catch you. If only bec- because we get to hear all these characters' names, we hear this one attribute that you need to know about them, and at the end of every t- end of everything, they take a shot <laughs> of vodka because they're in Russia. Um, after that... The show goes on. The show really becomes more of what it is known. What what it is. The prologue of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. If I haven't said it enough, is kind of a work of genius. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we're also talking about not just why is this song so good, but why is this opening number so good? Yeah, it's doing exactly what you know you need an opening number. It's doing to do. exactly what you need to, and simultaneously, it is. It is upending every thought you have about war and peace. Mm-hmm. Everything you know about war and peace, it's basically telling you, you, you can forget that. Well, let's move on to our very last section called Something Wonderful, where we just talk about something we're excited about in musical theater right now. Oh, okay. Well, I I think it's going to be a running, I think it's probably already a running theme with Yes, You Have On, that we're all really looking forward to seeing A Strange Loop at Playwrights Horizons. Mm-hmm. Um, because... I cannot wait to see what happens when the wider world discovers Michael R. Jackson and his, and his writing, or at least what happens when the wider world reacts to Michael R. Jackson, because he's another person who has an extraordinary, he can, he can fit himself into subgenres. he writes great pop songs, but he has a voice like nobody else has a voice. He... Not a singing voice, a writing voice. He writes songs that nobody else in the world could ever write because of their form or their topic. When you talk about writing from the heart, you are talking about Michael R. Jackson. Beyond beyond that, I am a couple of other things I'm looking forward to. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to Superhero at, at at Second Stage, which is the new show by Tom Kitt and John oh, Logan. When is that? Coming That's out? also in the spring, I okay. think. And I've heard a few songs from that in concert, which are really good. Tom wrote the lyrics for this one. Mm-hmm. Um, he's it, usually the composer. He's usually the composer, but he started off initially writing songs for his rock band, and he's written the lyrics and the music for this show. And the book is by John Logan who wrote Red and a number of other plays and films. Yeah. I'm looking forward to Octet, which is Dave Malloy's new show that's being done at Signature, oh, okay. which is the first time Signature has done a musical as part of their season. Oddly enough, 
I'm kind of interested in King Kong, which is coming up. Oh, yeah. Which is strange. I feel weird about being interested in <laughs> um, Partly because it's been through so many writing teams at this point that you wonder. I wasn't looking super forward to it until, and this is a weird reason to start looking forward to a show, until they unveiled the art. They created these, they commissioned these three different posters by three really terrific artists. And these three posters, besides the fact that they're gorgeous, it's like, okay, you know your audience right now. What else are you doing right? Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious to see what else they're doing right. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. Please rate this podcast on iTunes and share it with your friends. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode, which will come out on Tuesday, September 4th, instead of Monday, because of Labor Day.